0: Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. This episode is going to be different. This is a recording of a presentation I gave at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Park City, Utah for their September 2022 summit. St. Mary's is not only the oldest Catholic church in Utah, but it's also the parish that I attend and where I was confirmed at the Easter Vigil in 2022. The title that the Church provided for this presentation is From Baptist Pastor to Faithful Catholic. If you've been listening to previous episodes, then some of the stories you'll hear may sound very familiar, as this presentation combines my personal testimony with some of the theological reasons that compelled me towards Catholicism. It was truly an honor to be able to share my story with my parish, and to be able to share my story with you. Good evening, everyone. Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness, of the creator of creation. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in a threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of the creation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Catholics worship Mary. <laughs> they believe in a works-based salvation. They don't believe in grace and faith. They believe that you work your way into heaven. Catholics worship idols. These were some of the things taught to me about Catholicism from a very early age from people who did not understand Catholicism. And these are things that I perpetuated in my life because i didn't understand catholicism as well so how did i become catholic Good evening, everyone. My name is Justin Hibbert, and it's a pleasure um, to be here tonight. Thank you so much for coming out to to hear my story um, or for coming out for the free beer and wine, but thank you anyways for for being here. I I truly appreciate it, and I'm so excited to share my story. It's actually not just my story. It's God's story. It's our story together because you have had a part in this as well. I want to just give you a very brief synopsis of my life. Um, I grew up and a home uh, that was affiliated with the Seventh-day Baptist Church. Not Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh-day Baptist. It's probably a denomination. It's tiny. It's probably something you've never heard of before. But I spent my uh, entire youth, young adult, and even part of my adult adult time there. Um, I I went to a fundamentalist Baptist school from pre-K through sixth grade. In seventh through twelfth, I went to a reformed Christian school that's associated with the Presbyterian Church. Um, I went to a Wesleyan college. And during college, I got involved with a, a Pentecostal churches and in a in a charismatic group of Christians. After college, I went on to pastor a church I, right after college. I was I don't even think I was twenty two yet, and uh, that went about as you can imagine. It was kind of a disaster, but I spent a couple of years there. Uh, my wife and I we decided to leave the Seventh Day Baptist denomination. Um, and I went on to be the worship pastor of a church with a a close friend and a mentor who grew up as an Orthodox Jew, converted to Christianity, and um, he offered me a position as the worship pastor at his church. I spent um, a number of years doing that, and then he took a call to go to the West Coast uh, to pastor a church out there, and so I stepped in as the pastor. Um, Here's a picture, actually, of, of me baptizing my oldest daughter. She just turned 16, and um, and uh, I think she was five or six there. And in fact, she's not here tonight because her and her sister are both in marching band. They have a big competition. Uh, my oldest, Leah, she um, is the drum major at Wasatch High School, and her sister, Naomi, is in Color Guard. Uh, but with me tonight is my son, Xander, as well as my wife, Carlene. After um, a number of years in vocational ministry, uh, I was always a part-time pastor. I put part-time in quotes there because you're never really part-time. Uh, but I had a full-time job on top of pastoring. And so we decided that, hey, I was either going to die before I was 40 or our family was going to fall apart. I was always so busy. So um, I decided to leave vocational ministry at the age of about 34. And I... Um, during that time, though, we we got to experience other churches. We spent some time in a Mennonite community. We lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, and then we spent a couple of years in a Presbyterian church. And then when we moved out to Utah, we were attending an evangelical church. I, I give you this um, because I want you to understand that my background is thoroughly, thoroughly Protestant. And in fact, um, I at an early age, I was... Um, writing about Christian apologetics. Even before blogging was a thing, I was blogging about Christian apologetics and I was defending the faith. And one of the things I'd often um, argue against was Catholicism. I saw Catholicism as this kind of deficiency of Christianity, this kind of corruption of Christianity. And, um, you know, even when I, I met some dear friends who were devout Catholics who said, hey, you know, the things that you're saying about Catholicism isn't really accurate At all, you know, I I still saw Catholicism as this stale, lifeless, boring religion. I mean, you guys look at your priests, like look what you make them wear, like all of those suffocating clothes and you're standing up and sitting down and saying the same thing over and over every week. And I thought... Man, this is so stifling. My version of Christianity looked like this with the hipster t-shirts and jeans and the electric guitar and the strobe lights and the fog machines and the sound system. And this is where the Holy Spirit was. Thank you very much. So how in the world did this happen? How in the world on April 16th, 2022, did I make a profession of faith at St. Mary's Church here, saying, I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and proclaims to be from God. Tonight, I'm going to share with you uh, my story, and actually a few stories. You see, one of the things that I've learned is, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but among those who are Catholic converts, one of the things that is a similar theme is, is someone will ask me hey Justin when when did you become catholic and and i can look at specific moments in my life and i can see you know the progression here i certainly see this night at the easter vigil where i made that profession where i was um, where i received my first community, communion where Um, I was confirmed into the church. I remember starting RCIA. But as I look back on my life, I also see these little vignettes that meant nothing to me at the time. But it was like Jesus planting these little seeds and just being patient and waiting and watering and just waiting for the right opportunity. So tonight I'm going to share with you a a few stories. Um, I could probably share lots of stories, but I'm just going to pick three for the sake of time. Uh, about how I ended up here. And my purpose is this. Number one, um, I want to share my faith. This is so meaningful to me. And uh, getting to to share it is such a delight. And I'm so humbled that St. Mary's would ask me to do this. Um, The second thing that I want to do is, is, I don't know where you're at um, in your relationship with the Catholic Church. Uh, Maybe you are a cradle Catholic. Maybe you're considering Catholicism. I hope something tonight, I, something I say tonight may spark something inside of you. Um, it, maybe it'll be helpful, and I'm always happy to have a conversation with you. Or maybe you have friends that you've been talking to about Catholicism, and maybe something I say might be helpful to you as well. Um, the third thing is is this, is that I, I have a heart for ca- cradle Catholics, people who grow up in the church. Um, because I think sometimes when we grow up with something, we don't appreciate it as much. And sometimes seeing it from someone else's perspective helps us to appreciate what we have. So for example, when I moved to Utah, I would travel everywhere. I'd take all these pictures. And my friend said to me, I've lived in Utah my whole life. And you've seen more of the state than I have. And looking at your pictures makes me realize and appreciate what a beautiful state I have. So with that Let's begin with story one. I boarded a red-eye flight from Salt Lake City to Newark, New Jersey. I sat in my window seat, nestled into my window seat. I pulled out my noise-canceling headphones when all of a sudden, this bubbly young lady plops down in the middle seat right next to me. She was overflowing with joy. And I said, I've never seen someone so excited to get on a flight, let alone a red eye flight, let alone a red eye flight to New Jersey (laughs) sitting in the middle seat. And so I was like, I got to find out what this, you know, what this, what this woman's deal is all about. And so we, we, she was a chit-chatty kind, you know, the, the kind that sometimes you don't want to sit next to in an airplane, airplane, but I decided to engage with her in a conversation. And I learned that she was a student at BYU-Idaho, and she was headed to her more year-and-a-half Mormon mission trip in New Jersey. And then I felt really bad for her because I was like, this girl could go anywhere in the world, and her church is sending her to New Jersey. What in this poor, 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 <laughs> poor lovely bubbly young lady Uh, anyone here from new jersey should have asked that first (laughs) Uh, so so uh i'm from maryland i spent most of my life in maryland um i spent a few years in pennsylvania and we talk about new jersey the way that utahns talk about california and wyoming and nevada and arizona and so on you get the point so we're, we're we're chatting and um our conversation turns into onto the theological, and you know I wasn't here to uh, have an argument with her. I wasn't here to try and convert her or tell her what she was, you know, like oh, you're going on a mission trip for nothing or something really insensitive like that. Um, I wanted to learn. I had just started working for a Utah-based company. I had a lot of Mormon coworkers, and I'm like, I don't really know anything about Mormons, and. You know, I'd love to hear it from their perspective. What do they believe? And so I, I just started asking questions. Well, what do you believe about this? And why do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? And why? And and so on. So there comes a time in the conversation where she uses a phrase that I had never heard of. It, she says, the great apostasy. Anyone here heard of the great apostasy? Do you know what this belief is? So this is, so I didn't know either. And, and so I said to her, I said, hey, hey I'm, I'm going to need... You to explain that to me. I don't know what the great apostasy means. And she said, sure. She said, after the original disciples, the apostles died, the church went apostate, went off the rails. It started believing weird things. They practiced a a distorted version of Christianity. And um, God took away his blessing and his priesthood from the church and did not restore it until 1829 with Joseph Smith. And I said, Okay, I'm tracking with you, uh, but what you're saying here makes me have serious questions. I said, look, are you suggesting to me that Jesus' disciples, the very people that walked with him, that performed miracles with him, that saw him perform miracles, the ones that he laid hands on and gave his authority to, are you suggesting to me that they were incapable of pastoring the next generation of Christians? Or I said, or, or, you know, Jesus's last words to his disciples was go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've told you. And I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Are you suggesting that Jesus just kind of changed his mind? Or consider Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrived, and you had Christians that were scared. They were locked in a room in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes and just empowers them. And Peter gets he gets up, and he gives the this guy who's like fumbled through his faith with his time with Jesus, gets up and gives the sermon of his life. Are you telling me that the Holy Spirit was incapable of keeping out apostasy, a systemic apostasy from his church? On her lap, she had a Bible because she was. She would look at various verses as she was talking to me. And I said, what about that Bible there? You, when was that Bible established? When was the canon established? It was established long before 1829. How can you trust that that Bible is true? That translation that you're using was was translated long before 1829. How do you trust it if the very people that gave it to you were apostate? But in asking these questions, I suddenly was struck with something. I had to ask those same questions of myself. Because as a Protestant... I didn't believe, I didn't call it the great apostasy. I'd never used that, that phrase, but we believed something very similar to what the Mormons believed. Um, we believed that, you know, the Catholic church was the only church at the time and, um, and it was going okay. And then all of a sudden it just went off the rails. And if you would ask me, Justin, when did that happen? I would give you a vague answer and say something like, oh, Constantine. But I didn't know any of the details. I didn't understand it. I would just say what people have told me. Oh, yeah, Constantine. Constantine was the fall of the Catholic Church. And that's when things went really awry. And I realized I knew nothing about the early years of Christianity. I didn't know who, who Clement was. Clement? Oh, he's listed in the Bible? I didn't know that. I mean, okay, he's a disciple of John? Oh, he wrote stuff? I didn't know that. Oh, he's the third bishop of Rome? The third pope? I I didn't know that, you know? And so I began to read the early church fathers and read the early historic record of Christianity. And something jumped out at me like it does for every Protestant who reads this. You read it and you're like, oh, This doesn't look like my mainstream evangelical church at all. This looks really Catholic, both in its doctrine and in its structure. St. John Henry Newman, uh, the famous Anglican who converted to uh, Catholicism, Said this, he said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Actually, he says a lot more. He says, he says, so much must the Protestant grant that if such a system as he now believes he would have introduced in early times, it has been clean swept away as if by a deluge, silently, swiftly, and without memorial. In other words, inside of the early church history, you see. Um, heresies pop up. You see things like Gnosticism and Doeticism and um, Arianism and so on. It's not like the Catholic Church tried to hide these isms. Uh, It talks about them. It talks about how they, they put them out. What did they do to keep the church from going down that path? But a lot of the Protestant beliefs that we have that are different than Catholicism, we do not see those at all in the early historic record of Christianity. We do not see them until like the Reformation or later. Now, this was this airplane flight was about seven years ago. And it's not like I got off the flight and immediately said, I'm becoming Catholic. It's not like that at all. But I began passively percolating on these Um, ideas of the early church and really inquisitive about the early church and started just reading things here and there about it. Um, And all of that was kind of going on under the surface. I want to move on to story number two, because after I I left uh, vocational ministry, um, you know, we attended some different churches and I have to admit, I was struck by something. I was like, man, all I feel like I'm doing is coming here and being a spectator. I'm coming here. I'm uh, listening to music. I'm listening to this long sermon, and then I'm going home. I'm struggling with understanding the point of what we're doing. It seems like it's missing something. And I was really frustrated because I could not put my finger on what I was missing. It was like I was deconstructing and I didn't know what it was all about. You know, and I wasn't deconstructing my faith. It was like I was deconstructing my church experience. What are we doing here? Where is the substance? What is happening? Why, why is it just this long sermon? And, you know, certainly there was this aspect of community and we're coming here and we're saying hi and we're seeing people and everything like that. But, you know, it's like, I mean, I could do this in my living room. What is, what is church about? Well, during 2020, everybody's uh, favorite year, (laughs) I know, um, churches shut down. The world shut down, right? And uh, pastors decided, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my camera and I'm going to point it right at me. And this is what church is going to be. And they would tell us to tune in at 11 a.m. or whatever and watch the music and watch the sermon. And and I was like, what are we doing here? You know, I was like, my experience in my living room is kind of no different than my experience at a church. I mean, minus all the people, right? But, you know, I could get people together and, and we could do this in my living room. But You know, during the week, I'm listening to praise music. I listen to better sermons from well-known pastors during the week. Why should I be doing this? What is this? Why is this church? How is this the only thing that that church is? You know, I don't know what it was like in the Catholic church, but in the evangelical circles, 2020 was a real mess. You know, they say that crisis creates character. I say crisis reveals it, and it was pretty revealing what was coming out of a lot of evangelical churches in um, in, in that tw- in twenty twenty, amidst the the pandemic, the race riots, just that awful election. Um, you know, it, it was it was gross, and and so I began just thinking about what do I want in a church? I mean, when when things reopen, when things kind of get back to quote unquote, the new normal, what do I want to see? What what kind of church community do I want to be a part of? And so I began to kind of make a mental list. I said, number one, I, I want it to be Christ centered. You know, so much of these evangelical churches, you know, it, it's, it's personality driven. And I don't think anyone wants that. I don't think pastors... You know, I, well, some do, but I, I think that for the most part, pastors say, yeah, this is a Christ-centered church. But the reality is, is that because so much of the time is focused on music and it's focused on the sermon, especially the sermon, it's really personality driven that people go to church where they enjoy listening to that pastor because they're going to be sitting there for 30, 45 minutes, even maybe closer to an hour listening to that person I said, I, I want the focus off of an individual and onto Jesus. I said, you know what? I, I value history. I've learned a lot from Christian history. So much of church, my church experience here, it's like, we don't even talk about history. We, we, talk, about, um, we talk about five ways to um, have financial freedom, you know, <laughs> seven ways to show kindness I mean, tell me, I want to know about Christian history. What is this thing that I believe that I'm in communion with? People that have passed on, uh, the martyrs of history. What is this thing that I believe? You know, 2020 was a year when people suffered, people lost jobs, people risked losing their homes. And I thought, I want a church that is charitable. I was so moved to hear of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that St. Mary's gave to families in need. I mean, that touched my heart. Um, you know, another thing I said, I said, I want a church that's diverse and that's kind of hard in Utah, but, but in reality, it doesn't matter where I was in life. It was like churches always looked like me, looked like white middle-class communities. And especially with the race riots going on, I'm like, how are we supposed to minister to the black community when there's no black community around us to tell us how we can minister to them? How can we create empathy when when our, our spiritual exercise for the week includes people that just look like us? I said, I, I really crave that diversity. And I know it's challenging in Utah because it's not a very diverse place. But I thought the other thing is, you know, I'm looking for a global church because maybe we can't manufacture diversity, uh, a super diverse environment here in Utah, but certainly we can have voices that speak into our church, that it's not just about the four walls of our church, what's going on in our community and in our valley and in our mindset, but rather how do Asians think about Christianity? How do Africans, how do South Americans think? think about Christianity. What do they have to say about our faith? You know, there were a lot of pastors saying some really nonsensical things during the pandemic. And I thought, I need a church where pastors are accountable. I can't go back to a church where there's no uh, accountability structure, you know. Um, Another thing is I'm looking for a church that's consistently pro-life. You know, there were so many churches that were like faith over fear and they threw out masks. It's like, it's like either we get together maskless or else, you know? And it's like, why? Like, why make this an issue? Why not just be prudent? Why, why, why do this? Like get together and take proper precautions. I have to say that, you know, our first Um, let our first mass was at Lent at St. Lawrence. And I saw that we had to sign up. I saw that there was like every other pew was closed off, that they were really limiting seating, that people had to wear masks. And that to be, that was a big witness because my wife, she was an ER nurse at IMC. She's in the thick of COVID and dealing with COVID. She's watching people die. She's putting people in ventilators, you know, and, and um, for us to see that kind of care that's that the church is taking as just proper precautions, just spoke volumes to us, was a real witness to us. And so we greatly appreciated that. Nobody likes to wear masks, but you know what? Taking just small precautions to protect others' lives, I thought, man, what a mess Christians that that, that are getting up here and saying, no masks, no this, no that, no precautions. What a mess we're making with the world. What We are destroying our pro-life witness. And so I was really looking for a church that was consistently pro-life. The other thing is a church that's above politics. You know what? In my, in my circles, we get so dragged into politics and um, and I was so tired of it. I You know, the, the election of 2020 was an absolute fiasco. It was a disaster. It was an embarrassment. And I thought, you know what? I don't want this anymore. I don't want a church... A community that just like tows the party line. I want a church that speaks into politics, not becomes a slave of it. So I was thinking about all of those things, and I finally came to a question. And I said, "Am I looking for the Catholic Church?" <laughs> now you have to understand, oh, what a, what a, um, what a crazy question that was, because never. In a million million years would I have ever ever asked this question? Would I have ever, would I have ever considered Catholicism? I was very anti-Catholic, and here I was asking this question. I, I had to come up with. I, I had to ask myself two things. Number one, I was like, "Am, am I? It's, a, it's because I'm stuck inside and I've just gone crazy. <laughs> you know, is this is this it? Or, or I had to ask myself, look am I considering Catholicism because for the first time I've really kind of broken ties with um, the, the Christian communities that keep me in these circles and these Protestant evangelical circles and so for the first time I have space to ask these questions I you know my my church community the one that I, I feel closest to the one I spent so much time with is 2,000 miles away. My family is 2,000 miles away um, on the East Coast. I, I, you know, I'm not really attending the church here. And I, I was kind of passively attending it even when I was here. And so is this the space that I needed to consider the Catholic Church? And that's what, that's the conclusion I came to. And so I said, well, you know what? I I really need to understand this. I need to really investigate Catholicism. And and so I, you know, I'd get on St. Mary's website and I'd look at all these videos that Father Gray has posted, these St. Mary's minutes and everything. But then I said, you know what I really need? I really need, I need someone to explain Catholicism to me like a Protestant um, but not a Protestant that explains Catholicism in like a nefarious way, like a lot of them do. Like this, this is what the Catholic Church believes, and this is why it's wrong. I don't need that. Um, I, I I have Catholic friends that can explain Catholicism to me, but what I need is I need someone who maybe was a Protestant who converted to Catholicism who can speak those languages. And so I stumbled across this podcast called "On the Journey" with Matt and Ken. Has anyone listened to this podcast? I highly recommend it. It is fantastic. Um, Uh, Ken, the older guy, he was a former Baptist pastor converted to Catholicism. Matt was a former Wesleyan that, uh, converted to Catholicism. I thought, this is great. I was a former Baptist pastor and I went to a Wesleyan college and they're able to explain Catholicism in using, um, in like a bilingual kind of way. So they're able to say, look, Hey, this is how I thought about this when I was a Protestant. And this is, this is how I think about it now as a Catholic. Um, and this is this is what what's wrong about what Protestants say about Catholicism. And I found this to be so so helpful. In fact, uh, Ken and I, uh, he's reached out to me on Zoom. We've had a couple of calls and we've emailed back and forth. And so he's been really helpful um, personally to me. But they're part of um, a bigger network called the Coming Home Network. How many of you are familiar with the Coming Home Network? Yeah. They've, you know, they do tons of videos of people who are coming into the Catholic Church, Catholic converts, Catholic um, reverts, uh, people that left and are coming back. And there's a whole online community as well and so i got involved in this online community and i'm seeing other people that are uh, thinking about catholicism whether they are atheists or uh, former protestants or again people that are coming back to the catholic church and um and and i thought to myself i thought man this is this is crazy i said i mean I was like first of all i can't imagine telling my friends and family that I'm becoming Catholic. I just can't imagine doing that. But I said, on the other hand, like, this is kind of a big deal. Like, I'm a pastor, a former pastor. I had to start a number of ministries, and here I am coming into the Catholic Church. This this would make waves. This would be kind of a big story. And then I discovered that there's a whole private section on here for former and current clergy who are considering becoming Catholic. And I was like, oh, my story is not special at all. And I feel for some of these people. You know, I had left ministry like seven, six years prior um, to my conversion to Catholicism. Probably about five years from when I started looking at Catholicism seriously. And and there are pastors on here that are current pastors. You know, I I feel for them. When they decide they're going to become Catholic, they're going to lose their jobs. And for some of them, this is all they've ever done their entire life. And they're gonna have to find a new career. And I thought, man, here I think I'm some special case and I'm really not at all. But you know, what I've realized is that for Protestants becoming Catholic, it's a little bit like this—a little bit like American Ninja Warrior, right? We have um, obstacle after obstacle, obstacle after obstacle, and some, you know, for these for these athletes, some of the obstacles are easier than others. They breeze through one and they get stuck on the other, or vice versa. And for Protestants, it's a lot like this because you have to understand that everything we've been told about Catholicism from the very beginning, it's it's that, you know, there are lies about Catholicism. There are half truths about Catholicism or they're like, here's, here's what Catholics believe and here's why it's wrong. So we have to unlearn everything and it feels a little bit like. These American Ninja Warrior challengers, where we, um, you know, we think about Mary. Okay, we have to work through this. We have, how do we? How does the church think about this? Can I get over this obstacle? You know, oh, the Pope and so on and so forth, and um, and so it's, it's 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 a lot of work to go through it. It's a a lot. You know, it's for some people it takes years to go through it. Now, as I was working through these obstacles, there was one one that I knew was lying up ahead, that I was. I was going to struggle with. I mean, the other ones I was kind of getting through some some quicker than others, but I knew there was one ahead and I did not know how I was ever going to believe what Catholics believe. Does anyone want to take a guess at, at what it is? Oh man, you guys nailed it. Yeah, the Eucharist. And it's not because I didn't know what Catholics believe about it. It's because I did know. In fact, some uh, 20 years ago or so, early on in my time in pastoral ministry, I had a parishioner who was dating a Catholic girl. And he said to me, he said, hey, Justin, um, me and my girlfriend are having some struggles in our, in our relationship because of the differences in our faith. Could you, could you possibly meet with us and talk with us? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So I sat down with them and the Catholic girl says, look, I don't know what the big deal is. I'm Catholic. He's Baptist. Big deal. And I said, well, you have to understand, you guys believe some different things. I, I said, for example, communion. You know, us Baptists, we believe that the bread and wine are symbolic. Catholics believe that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. And she looked at me funny and she was like, no, we don't. And I was like, sure, you do. This is called transubstantiation, you know? And and she's like, no, we don't believe that at all. And I was like, um, yes, you do. This is... Kind of a big thing for the Catholic church, you know, the bread and wine become the body, soul, blood, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And she was like, no, we don't. And I finally had to drop it. I was like, well, this girl doesn't even believe what her church believes. No wonder she doesn't think that this is a, this relationship, you know, and these differences is a a big deal. But I didn't know how I was going to overcome this because I was always taught that that communion was symbolic. That's important that it's, it's an important celebration and memorial of Jesus's sacrifice to us, but the bread and the wine are just bread and wine or bread and grape juice in our case. Um, nothing happens. If the crumbs fall on the floor, nothing happens. If, if there's still juice in the cup when it's over, nothing happens. Like it's not a big deal. And I thought, okay, well, you know, um, maybe I get to the, uh, you know, maybe, um, Maybe I can just kind of skip this one. You know, when I go up to give my vows uh, on the Easter Vigil, I'll just be like, I believe most things, you know. Um, but but when you read the Catechism, uh, there's no getting around it. It's like the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the Apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. Uh, yeah, kind of a big deal. Kind of like... The biggest deal. The, this is the center of Catholicism. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to get over this one. Maybe I, I've gotten to this point. I've gotten through other things. I've I've grown to really appreciate the Catholic Church. But, you know, maybe this isn't for me. I gave it a good college try. And I, I just am not going to be there. So how did I, I mean, I'm here. I said my vows. How did I end up here? How did I end up believing in the Eucharist. Well, this takes us to story number three. We were attending a, um, a Bible study with our former, uh, with our friends who we formerly went to church with. And, um, and, you know, nobody there really knew that I was considering Catholicism. I was, this was very on the hush. Um, I was not going to say anything until I had made a decision. And, um, we were discussing in this Bible study 1 Samuel chapter four, chapters 4 through 6. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. It's about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was um, Israel's sacred artifact. It was a box uh, in, with, overlaid with gold. It, it inside had the Ten Commandments. It had uh, manna from the wilderness. It had the first high priest, Aaron, his budding staff. It budded almonds and it was in there. And on top was a lid with two angels, golden angels. And this was, this was just the most sacred, pla- sp- sacred space for Israel. Um, nobody was to touch the ark. When the priests carried it, they carried it using poles. It stayed in the innermost room of the of the tabernacle. Um, and on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take blood from the bull and the goat sacrifice, take it in, and drizzle it on top of the ark of the covenant. And God said, "I'm going to meet with you there, on top of the atonement cover." And and so this was this was God's presence concentrated on this particular box. So the story of 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6 is about the Philistines hijacking the Ark of the Covenant. And if it's okay with you, I would like to retell this story using my favorite version of the Bible, the Brick (laughs) Testament, or uh, also known as the Lego Bible. The the story begins with the Philistines in battle with Israel. The Philistines where Israel's just Nemesis They were just a thorn in Israel's side. and the Philistines I think are pictured here using the, uh, wearing 18th century uh, Russian garb and the Israelites here are uh, portrayed as, I guess Jedis, I guess. So anyways, <laughs> the Philistines slaughter Israel. and, um, and so the elders of, of Israel decide they had an idea. they said, look, I've got an idea. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant. And let's take it into a battle, and we'll go back into battle with him. And surely we can't lose, because you know the Ark of the Covenant is powerful, right? Kind of like we're going to use it like their good luck charm. And they conspired with Eli's two sons. Now Eli, at the time, was the high priest. He was old, um, and his two sons were uh, were like the beavis and butthead of Israel. I mean, pastors' kids, right? And so, and so, uh, so these guys they take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and it backfires big time. Uh, The Philistines slaughter Israel again, and this time, to make matters worse, they steal the Ark of the Covenant. Now, to illustrate how big of a deal this is, uh, one of the Israelite messengers comes to Eli to say, hey, Eli, man, bad news. Um, Your sons are dead. And Eli doesn't respond to that. But then he says, oh, and the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. And that's when Eli falls over in his chair, breaks his neck and dies. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, you weirdo, how is this your favorite passage in scripture? Well, it's not my favorite, but it's one of them. Um, I, it gets better. It gets weirder. So the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant into their um, into the city of Ashdod, into their temple to Dagon. And the next day they come in, discover that Dagon is lying prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, well, that's weird. He fell over. So they pick him up and they put him back and then, and then the next day they come in and they find Dagon's head and hands chopped off and laying on the threshold. Now, at this point in time, I'd be out of there. i am like freaked out, like, see guys, like I'm going on vacation. But they just kind of went about their business, and then things get even weirder. Uh, people started breaking out in tumors. And so finally, they kind of wised up, and they were like, ah, ever since we brought this Ark here, like bad things have happened. And so they did what every neighborly city should do, and they sent the Ark of the Covenant to their sister city of Gath. I mean, this would be like New York City discovering a stockpile of nuclear waste and thinking, what should we do with this? Oh, I know. Let's put it on a ship. Let's send it across the Hudson River to New Jersey. (laughs) Well, anyways, the people in Gath didn't fare any better. They got tumors as well. And basically, the Philistines were playing hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant until finally they were like, good riddance. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's put it on a cart. We'll pull it with two oxen. We're going to put gold on this card as well. We're going to send it back to Israel and say, like, please take this off of our hands. And, and that's that's what they did. And so the, um, the oxen arrive in Israel and people see it and they throw a party. They sacrifice the oxen as a burnt offering and they're celebrating that the Ark of the Covenant is back in Israeli territory. Well, that night, a bunch of people uh, decide, hey, Why don't we open up the Ark of the Covenant and see what's inside? And that's what they did. And that night, God slaughtered them for it. It didn't matter if they were the Philistines or the Israelites. If they profaned the Ark, there was going to be consequences. They would pay for it with their life. I don't know if you've seen this movie uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. But there's this scene at the end where uh, the Nazis open up the Ark of the Covenant and all hell breaks loose. Actually, I should say all heaven breaks loose. These, the angels turn into angels of death and like melt people's faces off. And it's really gruesome and graphic. And I know that it's a Steven Spielberg, Spielberg film. And I know that this is fictional. And he's probably taking lots of liberties here. But, but you know, I, I kind of think that scene's a little bit more fact than fiction. You just didn't mess with the Ark of the Covenant. You didn't touch it. You didn't get close to it. I mean, it was a—it was the holiest thing, the holiest place in all of Israel. And a woman in our Bible study, after we finished reading the story, she asked a very profound question. She said this, she said, is the box, is the Ark of the Covenant God or is it a symbol? And I thought about that for a little bit. And I said, well, I said, wait, 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 it's a theophany. It's a physical manifestation of the presence of God. You know, um, God manifests his presence on various objects in nature. For example, the burning bush is a theophany or the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that led Israel through the wilderness. These are theophanies. These are physical manifestations of the presence of God. I said, the Ark of the Covenant, the difference here is that it's a man-made object, but God is also concentrating his power, his presence, his holiness onto this box. It is not a symbol. Symbols don't make people sick. Symbols don't kill people. And when I said that, I thought about a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper. And he says to them, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. And then, right then... Right then, the light bulb went off and I said, it, it's not a symbol. The Eucharist is not a symbol. Symbols do not make people sick. Symbols don't kill people. And that's when I began to really think about what did the early church fathers think about the Eucharist. And it's unanimous. There's not a point in time where the church wavered from its conclusion that the Eucharist is the body, and it is the blood of Jesus. Saint Ignatius of Antioch in 110 AD, a disciple of John said this, take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which that father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. And that day I realized something. I realized I had it all wrong about about Catholicism. Catholicism isn't the most boring, mundane, routine version of Christianity at all. It's... The wildest. We believe in sacraments. The, the, the chasm of the supernatural and the eternal seeps into our world, into our time, and into our space. The myth becomes fact, as C.S. Lewis put it. The mystery, the mystical world becomes open to us, and we experience the grace of God in these tangible ways. The great fiction writer uh, from the mid-20th century, Flannery O'Connor, tells this great story. Uh, she was at this dinner party and um, she was like, I don't, I don't know why I'm here. She felt uncomfortable. She was, you know, she was very shy, very timid an, an, an amazing writer, but just didn't know why she was there at, the, at this dinner, dinner party. Um, but just kind of dragged along. And there was a woman there who had written a book and just published a book. She was a, a, someone who had left the Catholic Church. And um, towards morning time, the conversation turned on uh, the Eucharist and Flannery being the Catholic there felt like she had it defended. And so um, this woman said, you know, I, I, I see the Eucharist as this this really nice symbol and Flannery O'Connor gets kind of worked up and in her shaky voice, like this is the first thing she said all night. She said, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. She, wrote, she later wrote to a friend and said, that was all the defense I was capable of. But I realize now that this is all I will ever be able to say about it outside of a story, except that it is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. The Eucharist is the center of existence for me. All oh, the rest of life is expendable. You know, it's funny. Um, the Eucharist is like the last thing that I considered in becoming Catholic. It should have been the first thing. It's the it's the most important thing, and uh, and and it was the hardest hurdle for me to overcome. Yet it is the thing that drew me to being Catholic. It's the thing when I understood this, I said, I. I'm either becoming Catholic or Orthodox when this is over. I cannot go back to a church that believes that the Eucharist, that the bread and wine, that communion is anything but the real presence of Jesus. I can't go back to that because this is life changing. This is where Jesus is. This is the most important thing. This changes everything. And friends, I have to tell you that you know, leading up to being Catholic, I could tell you all of the mechanics of the sacraments. I could tell you what I would do during confession. I could tell you what's going to happen and all of this stuff. I could tell you, like, here's what confirmation is going to look like. Here, you know, this is the theology behind the Eucharist. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to experience it. And my life completely changed when I became Catholic. Experience the sac- sacrament of confession, of reconciliation, was a, uh, the, a life changer for me. Every week I experience the Eucharist, I am changed. I see it in myself. I see myself becoming changed over and over and over again. I am not the same person I was on April 15th, 2022. I'm not a perfect person at all, but the Eucharist has changed my life. I want to just leave you with a couple of things. First of all, I have a podcast called Why Catholic? I love talking about my faith. And so this podcast is short episodes are about 17 minutes, no longer than 17 minutes in length for the most part. And um, they deal with specific topics of Catholicism. I love writing about my faith. I always have. I love radio. I spent some time doing radio. And so that's what these podcasts are. And um, I would love if you take a listen, maybe even review it, share it with your friends and, and so forth. But um, this QR code will take you to um, will take you to a link that has the list of podcasts. You can subscribe to Apple or Spotify or Google or anything like that. But also, you can um, listen to them there on the web browser as well. It's whycatholic.substack.com uh, And I, I'm doing this podcast for a, th- for a few reasons. Number one, I just love sharing my faith. Uh, this It brings me joy. This is what I'm living for. Um, but the second thing is... You know, I have a real heart for bridging that gap between Catholics and Protestants. I don't think that Protestants, all Protestants are going to listen to this and convert to Catholicism, but you know what I would settle for? I would settle for honest honest conversations because so much of what Protestants read about Catholicism comes from other Protestants. It comes from dishonest sources. It comes from people who don't really know Catholicism. They're just talking about it from the outside. And here they can learn what Catholicism is from the inside. If nothing else, have that honest conversation. You know, the the other thing that that I have a heart for is I have a heart for Catholics that walk away from their faith because they don't understand it. Nobody's explained it to them. Maybe they had catechism, you know, back when they were teenagers, but they haven't had the, you know, they haven't taken the time to think about their faith. And, And so they don't know the what or the why behind it. And so they walk away from it. And I hope this is uh, something that can help them, something you can listen to on your commute. It's once a week episodes that that you can consume and learn about your Catholic faith. So that's Why Catholic, um, the Why Catholic podcast. Thank you so much for that. And and I just want to end on, on this note here. Thank you. Not only thank you for being here tonight, but thank you for being a part of this story. You know, the St. Mary's community in St. Lawrence was just a treasure for us um, in in becoming Catholic. You know, uh, Father Gray, Killian, I mean, you guys um, just helped answer questions, met with us, had dinner with us. Um, Our sponsors, um, Anthony Jewett, Anthony Shumway, Lizzie, you you guys were just um, so instrumental in our lives. And of course... Deacon Tom and Nancy, and the, just the hours and hours and hours they poured into us at RCIA. This, I, I'm so grateful for you all. I and mean, This isn't just my story. This is God's story. This is our story, and it's just beginning, and that's so exciting to me. And let me just end with this note. I was one of the most anti-Catholic people out there, and if Jesus could turn my heart towards Catholicism. If he could make me Catholic, he can make anyone Catholic. God bless you. Good night. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this presentation. You know, afterwards, a lot of people came up to me to offer their heartfelt gratitude, which was just so touching to me. I also got a number of questions. And so along with this episode, I'm posting a and a episode as the next episode. Remember, you can always submit questions by sending an email to whycatholic at substack.com. I think one of the neatest conversations I had that night was from a young man who said, your story is my story. He told me how he went from being Pentecostal and is now Presbyterian, and it's really the church fathers and church history that is getting him to consider Catholicism. Well for him, and for anyone else like him, this is why I do this podcast. It is a joy to be able to share my faith because I know, you know what, I'm not a special snowflake. God is truly moving, ever desirous to bring together his fractured church, and I'm so humble to be a part of it. Thanks so much for tuning in for this special episode. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.